to everybody listening on Spotify, Overcast, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Farm, a show dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. I'm your host, Matt Kovitz, and joining me as always is Sam Shapiro. How you doing, Sam? I'm doing great, Matt. How about yourself? Doing great as well. It's been a busy award week, and we'll get into this. We did quite well with our predictions a week ago. You should be proud of yourself more so than me. You got almost, I think you went eight for eight. I went seven for eight. Uh, I, I went seven for eight too. I think, uh, I, I hedged a little too much on NL Cy Young, but, uh, we're smart and we should pat ourselves on the backs because we're smart. And the audience is smart for having to listen to us. Oh yeah. That too. You know, <laughs> pats on the back all around. Definitely. We will start with some news that broke a little while ago. The Miami Marlins in the news for something positive. And for the first time, it wasn't actually COVID related. They have just hired Kim Ng to be the new general manager. She will not only be the first female general manager in baseball, she'll be the first female general manager in all of North American professional sports of the big four. This is a landmark decision. And it's not just a sympathy hire. She is one of the brightest minds in the game. She's been around the league for around 30 years. Former assistant general manager of the Yankees, has worked with the San Francisco Giants, has worked for the Los Angeles Dodgers. She was in the running for San Francisco's GM job, the New York Mets GM job, and the Baltimore Orioles GM job heading into the 2019 season. Didn't make the cut there, but is going to be working with a Miami Marlins team that has a lot of positive momentum coming up. There is nothing but happy news coming out of this. And anyone disagreeing with the importance of including her gender in this is being willfully ignorant. Yeah. If people are doing that, they can suck eggs. Um, So this is something... uh, that I, w- I was not expecting to see, but I have been aware of Kim Ng since a very young age. You know, growing up in a Yankees household, when I was a little kid, I would always pour through my dad's old uh, Yankees media guides. And I remember I would scroll through the section, you know, on the front office, and I always see Kim Ng there and be like, "Wow, there's this, there's this, uh, this woman just in the sea of of white men, and you know, she's very unique, and and that's very impressive that that she made it that far." And during her her assistant GM tenure, uh, and so to see to see her finally take that leap, it's 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 great for the game. And obviously, as you said, the Marlins are getting a, a fantastic baseball mind. Uh, I think that uh, the, the the Jeter connection pays off here. Um, obvi- obviously, she a hundred percent got this on her own merit, but I I think that 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 has to help a little bit in terms of getting someone over the edge. So I, I guess. I have to say something complimentary about Derek Cheater. I'm going to have to go wash my mouth out with soap once we're done recording this. But yeah, this is this this is a good day for the Marlins organization. Uh, they have someone who's uh, incredibly competent and, and smart and knowledgeable about the game at the helm, and uh, I, I think she'll do a very good job. Historic and absolutely positive. The Miami Marlins leadership group: a shortstop, Kim Ng, and COO Caroline O'Connor. Very unconventional, but that maybe conventional does not work for this team. As I said before, they they are not entering a deep rebuild. They are emerging from one. This is a team that could be led to new heights. And I was having a conversation with my friend yesterday before this news broke. Do you think on their own merit in a regular five-team NL picture, the Marlins can sneak into the playoffs? Because they did, of course, this year, but they were the sixth seed. They would have missed out in any other year. I think they have the talent in 2021 to make a run, not just for the wild card, but even an outside shot at the NL East as well. Yeah, I think if the playoffs are closer to what they've been in previous years in size, that'll, that'll pose some problems just because, like, say in the Central, you've got, you know, the Cubs and Cardinals as pretty pretty to- uh, top-tier, close to top-tier teams, where whoever doesn't win that division 
is going to be a heavy favorite for one of the wild card spots. You got the Dodgers and the Padres both shockingly kind of play at the same level uh, this past year. And so I think that to, to get the Marlins to a, you know, Cardinals or Padres level over the course of 162 games uh, for me, that remains to be seen, but I'm decidedly more optimistic about that than I was uh, if you had asked me before this season or you know, at this point in time last year. Um, I, I think anything can happen, and es- especially next year when you'll presumably have a more normal trade deadline where you'll have these teams that are on, on the cusps of the playoff race or you know in contention for it being able to, to bolster their rosters and make the key additions they, they need in ways that you, you kind of saw this year, but it was kind of a muted version of that due to just how weird the season was and how you know, weird the market was. Um, and so I can kind of envision a scenario where the, the Marlins are buyers at the trade deadline, where they're able to you know, move some prospect capital around and, yes, sneak in as, as, as the fourth or the fifth seed. And this is a team that has to live and die by that trade market because they're not going to ever be a big free agent spender aside from their one season heading into 2012. And that was a disaster. I could see them acquiring Gosh. some more pieces over the winter. And that's the only way they're going to gain more talent. It happened this summer with Starling Marte. He was the marquee guy. They're going to be around. And congratulations to Kate Ming. She has inherited a very, very good team. Now for our problematic Southside King, Tony LaRussa. Turned out he was arrested for driving under the influence in February. He pulled the Buddy Velastro card. You can't arrest me. I'm the cake boss. He said, you can't arrest me. I'm a Hall of Famer, brother. Do you see my ring? Another thing he added to the officer. I pers- I hope this line reaches don't tase me bro levels of slang because if this weren't so embarrassing for, for the White Sox, it would be hilarious. Just this, this drunk old guy who thinks that, you know, his art, his, you know, conceitedly great managerial career gets, gets him out of a DUI. It's just, it's, 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 it's astonishing. And uh, I, th- I think this is a text, this is a textbook white privilege. If you ask me trying to pull this kind of card, you know, when you, when you, when you're pulled over, you're obviously sloshed and you know, you're, you're, you're on pace to, to pay the price legally. And of course, Jerry Reinsdorf uh, doubled down, you know, no penalty, uh, no sort of reconsideration of, of, of giving him the job. And this just makes the hole that the, the, the Sox have, uh, have dug themselves in even deeper um, because there were already some issues that we foresaw last time with uh, Tony La Russa acclimating to, to this clubhouse of younger guys, of guys who play the game with more swag and excitement. And now he has to come at them and say, hey, I've gotten two DUIs and I absolutely embarrassed myself in the process. You know, how can you respect someone like that? And it, this, is not, this, is not, this is not just for the guys like Tim Anderson who have extreme amounts of personality in their game or, you know, have strong political disagreements with Tony Lucifer. If I'm just like Joe Schmo on the White Sox, you know, how am I supposed to take this guy seriously? Without a doubt. And though it ended up not mattering, Marcus Stroman said that he would never in his life play for the White Sox if La Russa was there. So he may be a deterrent to possible free agents on the more outspoken side. Yeah, that's the thing is we don't hear that said about a lot of managers. You may even have like a couple managers in the game who are, you know, known as, you know, real prickly old dudes. I'm, I'm thinking of Jim Leland back when he was uh, when he was managing the Tigers. He was he was not a, a very jovial guy, but 
you would never hear a guy being like, oh, you could never get me to play for Jim Leland, no matter how much money you paid me. You know, that this is just a whole different universe than that. And this was very easy to just get out of. And Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't seem like he wants to do that. No matter what Rick Hahn may say, this was a move that started from the top. That's what Jeff Passan said, at least. And it's very clear that there were skeletons in the closet that got cleaned out because nobody cared at the upper level. And now Reinsdorf and his buddy will possibly be driving a team with potential into the ground. Who knows? Remains to be seen. It's still a long winter ahead. We'll see what goes up there. Now, a story that's evergreen. The Los Angeles Angels can't do much with Mike Trout and the other litany of superstars that they have. Occurred again in 2020. They had Anthony Rendon at their disposal. The offense, decent. The pitching, horrendous. Billy Epler, fired. And in comes Perry Manazian, hired from the Atlanta Braves. He was an assistant GM for Alex Anthopoulos for a number of years. Is he the guy that can finally turn this team around? They need a lot to go right Priority number one is signing a pitcher who is not going to spontaneously combust the second they set foot in Los Angeles. Yeah, and it's really interesting thinking about the Dylan Bundy acquisition from last offseason and how even with that paying paying off much better than anyone would have expected, uh, that was still such a, t- a terrible pitching staff. I think Manazian definitely has his work cut out for him. Uh, he does have, a, 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 like you said, a very solid baseball background. Uh, comes from a, a baseball family. I believe his father was a clubhouse manager back in the... Uh, in the early, in the earlier days of the Dodgers, uh, very close to Tommy Lasorda, so he's been around the game for a while. Paid his dues. It's my opinion that anytime you're uh, you're running a team in, say, like New York or Los Angeles, uh, you should be expected to go out and pay top dollar and bring in bring in the best players money can buy. Even though you know we'll, we we'll, we'll rag on them for trying to buy a championship, like, that's kind of what you got to do when you're in a, a media market of that size and you have that at your disposal. And I think. Uh, as you mentioned, especially the Mike Trout factor, letting the greatest player of his generation and one of the all-time greats waste away like that is absolutely inexcusable. An atrocious blunder of many orders of magnitude on the the part of the Angels management. Now, to owner Artie Moreno's credit, he is willing to open up his purse strings. It's just very James Dolan-like where the money is being sent to the wrong places and the wrong people. Can't give the... You can't give the Knicks crap for trying to spend money. It's just spent horrifically. And I think there are some analogous comparisons. Mike Trout, of course, spots you at least a 500 season. You need everything else to go at least okay to move above that threshold. And since 2014, it just hasn't happened. Quite unfathomable, really. Well, I think one thing uh, that's looking up for them is Albert Pujols got far fewer uh, of the at-bats at first base than DH. Um, I think when you're talking about spending money in the wrong places, that contract, what an albatross, uh, an an Albert Tross, if you will. I will. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I I think that uh, in looking back at the past decade, one would be hard pressed to find a worse long-term deal and to think of where that money could have gone in terms of signing other people later in the decade, you know, maybe smaller individual contracts, but smarter. Um, but also just the black hole he was in that lineup the past few years. Uh, by many measures, one of the worst everyday players in the league. Um, and sad, it's, which is sad because he had such a great career in St. Louis. But uh, it felt like he was just in that lineup based off of the goodwill his, his name provided. And as unfathomable as it is to say this, you know, they're, they're better off going forward with Jared Walsh playing first base, hitting in the middle of that lineup than, than, than Pujols. And uh, like you said, the offense was, was solid. 
you know, David Fletcher continued to take some steps forward. You had Taylor Ward show some flashes. Uh, Max Stassi looks like he's coming into his own as an everyday casher. And in a division where you have Oakland competing every year, where the Astros uh, have, you know, shown their resilience and their ability to develop young talent. You know, the Mariners, who were in the thick of it until the very end, they've got a lot of intriguing young pieces uh, in that lineup and in that rotation. Uh, and so there's really little margin for error for, for our friend Mr. Manasian here. An unenviable task, really, just trying to compete with the rest of that division. I have faith that they could try. I don't have faith that they will succeed. Now, wrapping up, tying up some loose ends, what we were talking about last week, the qualifying offers. We expected that Marcus Stroman and Kevin Gosman would remain with their teams. That ended up being true. Stroman will return to the Mets. Gosman will return to the Giants, each making $18.9 million dollars. As for the rest of the guys offered, DJ LeMahieu is going to be gone. Trevor Bauer is going to be gone. George Springer is going to be gone. Free agency for the top class of players is going to be unaffected by this pandemic. They're going to get more than that 18.9. They're going to get close to 20 or 25. For the middle class of guys, of course, it's going to be a bit different. You're going to have a lot of one-year and minor league deals. I think it was very smart for both of them to take this deal. Kevin Gosman had to rebuild his career after really bottoming out in the latter half of the 2010s. Just picked it up, and as I said last week, picked it up in 2019, picked it up last year. I think it's good. And though there were rumors that he was going to get some multi-year offers, I think it's best to stick with what you know. I'm pretty optimistic about the Giants, and having this guy at the front of the rotation, or closer to the middle at least, is not the worst thing in the world. And as for Stroman, he hurt his calf and then opted out. Not a bad idea to just stick around with the new regime of Steve Cohen. He is getting into the good graces of every single player he speaks to on Twitter, speaking to fans directly on Twitter. Seems like there's going to be a new positive change for the New York Mets, and Stroman's going to be a part of it as well. Yeah, like I said last week, um, this is a good time to be a player uh, with the option of coming back to the New York Mets, and that's something that hasn't been said in a while. And looking at Steve Cohen's opening remarks at that press conference, there were a couple we'll we'll get into later that, you know, raised a few eyebrows. It's such a, a breath of fresh air, I can imagine, for Mets fans, hearing an owner talking about bringing championships and, and spending the money necessary to do so. Uh, for all of my entire life following the game of baseball, uh, the Mets have been just an absolute laughing stock in terms of how they're run. You know, the, the, the Will Ponds, it's tough to say whether they're, whether they're even the worst ownership group in their own city just because of James Dolan to contend with. But as, 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 as you mentioned, at least Dolan tried to spend money. They're just the, the, the futility with the Will Pond family. It's, it's tough to even measure. All I can say is things will get better. Just even, even if there's no like specific, like outstanding moves that are made, just having like that increased level of competency and, and you know, increased willingness to open up the, the wallet. And it'll have to do something. Now, quite selfishly, perhaps I'm in a bit of denial. This can't be a bad move for the Yankees either because the Steinbrenners are not going to want to be second fiddle in their own city. And if the Mets increase their spending, the Yankees, I would imagine, also increase their spending. Then again, this doesn't always work as well on paper, but I don't see why competition is a bad thing for one side. Yeah, and well, I don't think that that rivalry quite rises to the level of, of Yankees-Red Sox in terms of it being great for the game when they're both good. But I will say that, uh, hey, you're still going to have the Subway Series every year, and if it's competitive between the two teams... And that gets some more juice in the New York media market. I'm all, I'm all for it. You know, I, I, I don't think they'll ever quite get back to the level of uh, Roger Clemens and Mike Piazza and throwing shards of wood at one another. But uh, uh, there's always the potential for some fun there. 
Moving on to the award winners that we profiled and tried to predict, mostly successfully last week. Rookie of the year, we'll start it off. Kyle Lewis for the Seattle Mariners, a BABIP guy who never really regressed. Maybe he does over a full season, but the M's have to really enjoy what they like. And how about Devin Williams and his miraculous changeup winning the award for the Milwaukee Brewers? Quite exciting for both of them. Yeah, and I'll, I'll happily cop to being wrong about Williams. I, I think I probably, in hindsight, underrated just how exceptional of a season out of the bullpen that was. And for Milwaukee to have him develop like that uh, is really key, especially given how up and down of a season Josh Hader had. It looks like Hader kind of reached his equilibrium again towards, towards the end of the year. Um, so we'll see if he can continue holding down that closer role. But imagine the two of these guys as, as an eighth and ninth inning knockout punch in the long term. That's going to be really key for Milwaukee because as we saw this year, they're just really hanging around the fringes of the postseason. Uh, they weren't even on pace to make the playoffs until I believe the last day of the season. And so when you're at the margins like that, when you're having to contend with teams that have stronger lineups than yours, uh, the ability to kind of neutralize things with the, with the back end of, of your bullpen uh, that's a really unique strength uh, for a team to have, and that can do a lot for them at those margins. And thinking like an owner for a second, it's very hard for a middle market club to have sustained greatness. You need a lot of cheap talent that consistently gets replenished. Going from a hater who's going to make a lot of money, and I think they should consider extending, to a guy like Williams who's still making the league minimum and is having equal, if not better, results, it's, a, it's even a great way to hold on to your NL Central competition. For a team that's not going to, again, not going to spend that much, Christian Yelich notwithstanding, they need all the help they can get on those margins so they can move into the postseason and remain the team that they were, get back to the NLCS, perhaps win the NLCS like they almost did in 2018. Manager of the year, we nailed this one. Kevin Cash, not held by gunpoint due to his mistake in Game 6 of the World Series, was named the Manager of the Year. Rick Renteria came in second place. Again, interesting since he was fired. Charlie Montoyo in third. Bob Melvin got a first-place vote for the Oakland Athletics. But the real story here, Don Mattingly, was not unanimous but had enough support from around the league, from around the writers. Jace Tingler in second. Other first-place votes, David Ross, Brian Snicker, Dave Roberts, and Craig Council. Don Mattingly should be commended for what he did. This is going to be an all Marlins praise episode, it seems like. Yeah, this was a good award season for Florida men. And usually those reports on the news are horrible. And we have actually good stuff today. Yeah, no, I think they, 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 they did a huge credit to, uh, to their demographic. Um, and I know I went way in, in depth praising Don Mattingly and his personal capabilities, but this really was a long time coming for him. And if you look at his, um, if you look back to his playing career, Imagine being a guy who came up to the big leagues, you know, right after that wave of Yankee success with the, you know, the, the Reggie Jackson teams, uh, toiling through the eighties where, you know, he had to watch Billy Martin getting hired and fired as, as his manager, like six different times. And then to, to retire right before, uh, the core four settles in and and, and that dynasty begins, uh, he really got the short end of the stick. And that can also be said about his, his tenure managing the Dodgers, where he, you know, gave them some decent teams, but their uh, next step didn't happen until after he left. So uh, in, in certain ways, he's been snake bitten. Uh, and so to see him get some recognition for a job uh, inarguably well done is really nice. In the Cy Young races, Shane Bieber, this was expected, unanimously wins the Cy Young Award, had all 30 first place votes. Is it too late to say sorry to the rest of the uh, competitors? 
Oh, wow. That, there's too much Justin Bieber, Shane Bieber talk on Twitter, but this is one way to grow the game. It's just having a lucky first, lucky last name. You know, and I've tried to restrain myself from making obnoxious references because it's, it's inarguably obnoxious. But, you know, like, like you said, uh, the future of the game is, you know, growing brand awareness, you know, leaning into like, you know, ironic online humor. And I think that's, that, that, that's how you get it. But back to the baseball side of things, what a season. What a, what a beautiful season. And I know that's not a word we use to describe seasons, but it just seems appropriate. His pitching was certainly yummy, 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 yum. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. And now in the National League, I was really pulling for Jacob deGrom. Did not happen. He came in third place. Second place with three votes was you, Darvish. Trevor Bauer, the most online man in the world, now entering his free agency period, won the Cy Young. He's going to get a blank check of money no matter where he goes. Others receiving votes here. Quite interestingly, Zach Gallen got two. Devin Williams got three. Aaron Nola got three points, one fourth place and one fifth place vote. Corbin Burns got a bunch of fifth place votes. Zach Wheeler got one. It's always fun looking down ballot and seeing what these guys get. Congratulations to Bauer, though. We've spoken his praises a bit for the last couple of weeks. Wherever he goes, he's going to make it interesting. Yeah, and of course he has his Cy Bauer t-shirts uh, ready to go to market as soon as it gets announced, because of course he does. Uh, one thing to, to note earlier, even though he rejected the qualifying offer, um, his, uh, his, his agent said that he will be open to re-signing with them, that he's not ruling out a return, and that this was just a, a rejection of the terms of the QO. Um, and so we, we, we've, we've talked about how bananas uh, of an approach he'll be taking to free agency. Sit back and enjoy the spectacle, folks. Get your popcorn. That, that's, that's all we can really say. I believe he said if he ever signed a multi-year deal, his friend had to hit him in the nuts with a paintball gun. I believe that's on the record. Seems like he's going to get hit with a paintball gun. Yeah, and it's going to get millions of hits. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because he's going to make well over $100 million wherever he ends up. And it seems like all 30 teams are in play. At least that's what he wants you to believe. Now for the American League MVP, I wanted DJ LeMahieu to win. At the very least, I wanted him to come in second place. He only received one first place vote, leading to a third finish. Jose Ramirez came in second. Jose Abreu winning the MVP award. Congratulations to him. He was the guy that was there for all of the ugly that the Chicago White Sox had to deal with, just not getting anything going, hovering around 500 before entering the rebuild. His sturdy presence is beloved in the city of Chicago, and he was finally rewarded at the highest possible level for his accomplishments. And a very similar story for the National League's first baseman MVP winner, Freddie Freeman, the first Brave to win this since Chipper Jones in 1999. It took 11 years to get to the top of this ladder, and he has really climbed it. Coming off of the horrific COVID symptoms that he had to deal with heading into the season, started off a bit slow, but was getting on base, ended up hitting 341. So quite an impressive year. Mookie Betts came in second. Anything you want to say about these two guys before I talk about the real story of the MVP voting? Yeah, just a, a couple of things. Uh, I would like to commend myself for my impeccable reasoning behind the Abreu choice. Uh, I said, and I quote, he just seems like the kind of guy who wins these awards. And what do you know? Uh, it turned out like that. And with, with Freeman, I know we've talked about the, the COVID stuff quite a bit in relation to him. Uh, I did not know that uh, his teammate Nick Markakis's initial decision to opt out was directly tied to seeing how poorly Freeman was doing. And for that kind of reaction, to be elicited in, you know, a, a big, hearty major league veteran, you know, 
these guys are tough guys. You know, that, that speaks to, to how serious this was. And his um, decision to opt in later in the year was due to Freeman personally telling him how great the protocols were and how well they were following them in Atlanta. Yeah, um, obviously that didn't exactly hold during the rest of the uh, league uh, postseason, but uh, we're, glad, we're glad that the Braves were able to, to work all that out. Really, really, really exciting moment for them. Uh, Chipper gave Freddie some love on Twitter. It hits you right in the feels. It really does. Now for the real story here. As I said, looking down ballot is always interesting to see where the writers are going. Paul Goldschmidt got a few votes, not for first place at all, just being worthy of having that accolade of they finished in whatever place in 2020. Brandon Belt, Dominic Smith of the Mets, Mike Yastrzemski got a lot of love. Here's a guy you wouldn't have expected. Ryan Tapera, the reliever with a 3.9 ERA on the Chicago Cubs. Unbelievable. And it turns out the writer was trying to vote for Trey Turner and he just made a mistake and selected Tapera instead. But that's going to live on forever. And that's one of the best stories of this season. I guarantee you that's going to be a great answer to a question on Sports Jeopardy one day. Who came in 18th place and why was it Ryan Tapera? Something like that. Also completely off topic for, for us as a show. Uh, I feel like it would be remiss if we didn't at least, you know, pay our respects to Alex Trebek, who had no connection to the game of baseball, but as citizens of the world who, who had televisions growing up, he was, he, was, he was a part of all of our lives in some way. And, you know, it really sucks, you know, that he's the latest casualty of 2020. So painfully sad. I have seen him in my household for my entire life, really. I watched every single episode that was available to me in the quarantine. I watched it at school. I watched it when I was a kid with my grandparents. Terribly, terribly sad. But he has to be commended for holding on for as long as he did. Pancreatic cancer is a nightmare. The fact that he lasted 18 months is at his age and in his condition is nothing short of remarkable. And he died doing what he loves, which was spending time with his family. He worked up until the 29th of October, meaning that there are 30 some odd episodes left. And then they have to make the big decision of who's going to replace him. I do want to talk about that. It has to be Ken Jennings, right? I don't think there's any other choice. They might make, they might make a dumb choice and turn Ken Jennings down, but he's been, been groomed for this for years. You know, they brought him on as, uh, as a consulting producer. He does video clues for them. Uh, he, he lives and breathes trivia. I, I, I think he has to be the pick. If you look on Las Vegas' sports books, at 100 to 1 odds, if you want to make some free money, Joe Rogan, in all seriousness, I think I would stop watching Jeopardy and just go to Wheel of Fortune if Joe Rogan became the host. That would just blow my mind. I mean, who's going to tell him he can't smoke a J on national TV? Like, that's, I think before you get to any other problems, <laughs> like, you know, he, he, Joe, Joe Rogan doesn't, doesn't do uh, uh, media broadcasts uh, without cannabis anymore. It just, that's, that's just how he operates. That would just be, well, it would get like the, 20-year-old libertarian audience to tune into Jeopardy. They may not initially do that without their savior next to them. Honestly, uh, Jeopardy with Joe Rogan sounds like a a half-baked SNL sketch more than it does an an actual possibility. I hope someone at 30 Rock is listening because we have some ideas for you. Now moving on to the farm, the weed story with the minor leagues this year has been the imminent contraction. And of course, we've talked about it. The pandemic has only expedited that date, and it seems like it's coming to a head. Last week in New York, bad news all around for the Yankees. Short A, Staten Island, and Double A, Trenton 
both believe the team did not work in good faith and that they were screwed over. The Yankees have decided to work with Hudson Valley for their new short A team. Their new double A team is going to be the Somerset Patriots of the Atlanta League, the Atlantic League. And now there is going to be no more Staten Island Yankees. There is going to be no more Trenton Thunder. Very unfortunate that these two teams that have been around for the better part of 20, 25 years working as affiliates for the Yankees have just had the rug cut out from under them. For the New York Mets, the plan was written out by Anthony DiComo, a beat writer for MLB.com. The Columbia Fireflies have been an affiliate of the Mets for years. They were not included on the list. They made a statement of it over Twitter that they were shocked they would not be included. The Brooklyn Cyclones rumored to be moving up to AA. The New York Penn League is going to be way different. It looking like it's going to be in a league for matriculating rising college seniors. That could be great for the developmental aspect of it, but there were, there were going to be way fewer jobs in the minor leagues. And I wanted to see if you could shed some light on the topic even more. Yeah, I, uh, I heard that the Columbia Fireflies news actually was, uh, was dropped by Steve Cohen in his press conference. Did I, did I get that right? That's, that seems correct, yes. That's, that's an unbelievably shitty thing to do. Um, and I think that it's one thing to have this contraction and to be kind of putting all these minor league clubs out of business. But I think to be, to be backhanded about it, to be, you know, if what Staten Island Trenton are saying is true, you know, not doing this, you know, in good faith and, and with honesty, I think that's, 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 that's even worse because it's completely unnecessary for major league clubs to be, to be taking that tack. You know, I think we're for places like Trenton where they sunk a lot of uh, taxpayer money into making that ballpark, what it is, uh, Staten Island, for however shitty of a borough it is, that's a nice park too. It's 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 a shame to be underhanded and just you know, kind of kick, kicking these uh, the, these minor league teams out by the curb. Uh, for the for the New York Penn League, uh, I I have to say that that cuts me deep because my uh, my hometown uh, Norwich team they changed their name. They became the Sea Unicorns. They completely redesigned their look, and you know now they're kaput. I th- I, I I think that's. Uh, it was kind of inevitable um, for something like this to happen, but it is, it is unfortunate to see just because and I think my experience is emblematic, you know, even at the low levels of the minors, you know, it's great for these communities. It's, you know, it's getting people out to a ballpark to watch a baseball game. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's fun for families. It's fun for, you know, the, the prospect nerds like me, you know, I remember uh, back when I was uh, living in Brooklyn, I, uh, I remember taking the train down to Coney Island so I could see uh, David Peterson's pro debut with the Cyclones, and that was you know, like that was one of the highlights of my summer that year. <laughs> um, you know, I will say shifting to something that's maybe a little more upbeat uh, about this is Brooklyn is a Double A market. I think uh, I think that's really cool and really exciting. Bringing baseball back to Coney Island revitalized that neighborhood in a way that hadn't been seen in decades, and I think that. The bigger the production is there, the, the, the better things that, that'll do for the area. Um, obviously, Brooklyn, one of, the, one of the fastest growing places in the entire metropolitan area. So being able to, like, being able to bring more people out is, is, is important. And I think you can do that by upping the caliber of play. Obviously, short season ball to double A, it's, it's night and day. You're getting a much higher concentration of, of highly touted prospects, guys who, you know, your, your hipster baseball nerds will you know, want to turn out and see, you know, oh, hey, you know, look, who, uh, look who's on, uh, on Portland as this top prospect for the Red Sox. Let's, let's go give them, a, give them a look-see. And also, being a double A franchise is much more optimal for 
hosting uh, players on rehab assignments, especially when you have the Mets just to burrow away. Uh, and so there's going to be an even larger uh, percentage of bona fide major leaguers you know, doing their, doing their rehab stints on Coney Island. And that's going to drive fan, fan interest up as well. And so that's one positive that I'm, I'm pulling out of this news so far, but it's a bit of a lonely positive. My Brooklyn experience was in 2014, I was able to see Ahmed Rosario and Michael Conforto in the same lineup, both get hits in the same inning. Very proud of that. I ended up playing there a couple of times for high school and for travel ball, just occasional exhibition games. Very fun, very great stadium. But as you that, as you said, there are very few positives to make of this. I know the baseball will be elevated, but this is not just a New York issue. There are going to be 38 other markets that are affected by this, including the Daytona Tortugas, who are an affiliate for the Cincinnati Reds. They were the host site of Jackie Robinson's first minor league game. He was sent down there while working for the Montreal Royals, but was dealing with very rabid and racist fans. Branch Rookie brought him down there to just get a taste of the league. These stories are not going to get any better, especially for these owners, for these families who put their time into running the operations, into these local economies that are not going to be stimulated by the minor league work anymore. And for the players who are always just trying to get by with their very low wages, I know there are going to be some increases with the contraction. There will be more money available for them. But even so, at what cost? Is this going to be discussed? I know it right now it is much better to be a team owned by a parent club because the Atlanta Braves own all of their affiliates. I know the Los Angeles Dodgers own Oklahoma City. They were never at any risk of contraction, but a lot of these independently owned teams are going to fall by the wayside. And I would imagine that translates to the independent leagues as well. Although the Sugarland Skeeters are going to be picked up as a minor league affiliate, as are the teams in Sioux Falls and St. Paul. Right now, the Appalachian League is going to be a college league. That's the plan. As Anyway, it's going to be a rapid change, and I'm not sure if I'm ready to deal with it. Yeah, I don't know if I am either. Um, speaking quickly about, about the, the Twins moving their AAA team to St. Paul, you know, Rochester's been the Twins' top farm team for years, and, you know, they've been, uh, I think, most of the second half of the 20th century as the Orioles AAA team. And so, you know, that's a really jarring change for a community like that, where, you know, they have the relationship with the parent club. All they've known are super long-term relationships with their parent clubs. I, I think also uh, in terms of these teams that are getting shunted into the independent leagues, I don't know if they're even going to be able to survive um, in that environment. At least from my perspective, uh, part of the draw that, I, uh, that I, I associate with affiliated ball is like, you get to see a team's prospects. You know, if it's your favorite team, you get to see who they've drafted recently or who's, you know, a highly touted prospect who, who might be in a big league lineup uh, in a few years. Obviously you have the people who are just going for a fun family night or, you know, to get out of the house or, you know, to, you know, get drunk with their friends or whatever. But I, I, I think that's, there's definitely a difference in, in demand, uh, based on, you know, what, what kind of product you're putting out there. And I worry that, you know, these teams that they'll say, Oh, go to the Atlantic league, Oh, go to the uh, American association or the frontier league, that that's not, not going to be a viable path forward. Uh, you mentioned some things about, uh, you know, about the financial side of things. Uh, MLB has released a proposal uh, eliminating clubhouse dues that typically came out of minor league players' pockets and really ate into their already low wages. Uh, there's a, a wage hike as well, which, you know, it, the, the, the MLB is really trying to spin this as something that's, you know, a great deal for the players. But, you know, this, this, could, have been, this could have been accomplished even without massive contraction. 
You know, there's, there's so much money in the pockets of these clubs. Uh, you know, there could have, there could have been progress, you know, on the labor relations front, uh, in the minor leagues and it could have been accomplished that way. And I think that's when it comes down to it, I, I don't trust MLB to have minor league players or minor league franchises best interests at heart. This is a, this is a, a league that focuses solely on its bottom line and will make decisions, uh, in accordance with that. If they feel that, you know, it's better for them to give, you know, to give some extra crumbs to minor leaguers, then I guess that's, that's, that's good outcome wise, but there's, there's no trust there, at least not for me. Last question. Is there any way to spin this centralization as a positive? Now the league is all about growing itself. They've had, they've shot themselves in the foot many a time, just trying to market themselves. There are going to be fewer levels for these prospects to climb. And if everything is centralized, perhaps they can make a bigger spectacle of, oh, this number one overall pick is now here in double A. Come watch him. This double A team is a product of us now. Is there any way to make any audience member believe that more eyes on these guys from the moment they're drafted till the time they graduate is a good thing? Perhaps with more centralization comes more time on TV for these affiliates. Perhaps there's more news coverage when you go to a stadium and you get to hear about what's going on in their farm systems. I'm just spitballing. I'm not even trying to play devil's advocate. I'm just thinking of how they may try to spin this as well. Yeah, I think the problem with that is that would require competency on the part of, of the MLB's marketing of uh, apparatus. And I think one of the recurring complaints that we have, not just on, on the show with the two of us, but with knowledgeable fans of the game in general, is MLB sucks at marketing and promoting its product. That's why you have guys like Trevor Bauer just putting forth, you know, inordinate amounts of their spare time, pushing his own brand, advertising himself. You know, you mentioned Stroman starting to, you know, really go out of his own way to grow his brand on, on Twitter and engage with the world at large. It's, it's really sad that this has to fall on the shoulders of individual players to do what should be the league's job. And, you know, in theory, if they had, you know, the right people making these decisions, centralization could be a marketing bonanza. MLB has, sh- has given me no reason to think that they're capable of that, which is, which is really unfortunate because it could be a great opportunity, but I, I think it will be because of that. A lot of questions have to be answered for sure. Well, this was another great Friday well spent. I'm very glad to have gotten this hour with you on the farm. Matt Kovitz, Sam Shapiro. Have a great week, everybody. 